Welcome to Border Walkers, the podcast where we have conversations with people who are choosing to live as border walkers by navigating the battle lines of identity politics and culture wars in search of a common humanity. We have these conversations in hopes that we can grow ourselves in these same attributes. My name is Daniel Melville Jones, and I'm the host of Border Walkers, along with my friend Lance Dixon. We were delighted to have this conversation with Dr. Marilyn McIntyre. Marilyn has spent her career caring for words and teaching others to do the same. A poet and the author of over 15 books, Marilyn has embodied the border walking approach we're seeking to cultivate on this podcast. First as a longtime professor of American literature, and then as the professor of medical humanities at UC Davis and the UC Berkeley UCSF joint medical program. As you'll hear in this conversation, two of her books, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies and Cultivating Peace in a Climate of Conflict, are really books of strategies for border walking. And so it was appropriate and an honor to have her on Border Walkers. The conversation you're about to hear was hosted live on Teams. And so the first 20 minutes or so are my own questions for Marilyn, after which we asked the audience to submit their questions and comments. I know you will enjoy this conversation with Marilyn, and I hope you find it as stimulating, challenging, and encouraging as I did. Enjoy. We are delighted to have Marilyn McIntyre. It's an honor to have you with us here tonight. You know, actually, it was Anne, my wife, who introduced me to your book, Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies. Back when we were just dating, she read it and said it was one of her favorite books that she read, and she passed it on to me. And I read it, and I think both Annie and I recognized in your writing the values and the habits which we wanted to grow into. And that really helped us understand each other better during that time. And if I were to summarize your writing, Marilyn, I would say that you teach us to value words because of the ways that words shape humans. And this message is resonating with me and Lance especially because those of you who are here for our last conversation, you know that our Zoom call was hacked by a group of people who deliberately used their words to wound, hateful, racist, destructive words. So for those of us who were there, we really felt the power of words to intentionally harm. And the challenge I think you raised for us, Marilyn, in your book is to use words intentionally to heal. And that's something we really need in our culture and right now. And your newest book, Speaking Peace in a Climate of Conflict, when I read it, I recognized it as a sort of practical guide to the vocation of border walking. It's filled with specific strategies for moving from confrontation to genuine conversation. And I'm looking forward to asking you about some of those strategies. But before we do, I want to hear a little bit about your own career as a border walker. Because my understanding is that you taught American literature to college students for decades, and then eventually became professor of medical humanities at UC Davis and UC Berkeley. So I wonder, could you tell us that the worlds of medicine and the world of humanities seem often to be at odds with each other? How did you learn to border walk between those two disciplines and teaching those who are science lovers to appreciate words and those who are word lovers to appreciate science? Well, thanks for that question. I love medical humanities. And in fact, I've done a lot of interdisciplinary work of other kinds too. I do like border walking. This is the perfect Mm -hmm. conversation for um, the way I have tried to approach life. Mm -hmm. But the medicine was a real road not taken for me. I always wrote. 
I always liked writing. I enjoyed learning languages, but always in the background, there was this thought that maybe I'd become a doctor. And I wrote, I read biographies of doctors and um, I think Dr. Tom Dooley, Dr. Ida Scudder, some of the, some of the great doctors in history, which you see in the Sherwin Newland's wonderful medical history, just called Doctors of Biography, looks at the lives of doctors over history. So um, finding my way into this field was a joy. And it happened during the AIDS epidemic, um, during the height of the AIDS epidemic. I was a young, just out of graduate school professor, and um, I wrote a paper about the literature that was emerging from that epidemic. There were poems, there were memoirs, there was fiction, everything. And so I wrote that paper and I took it to our professional meeting and it turned out there were other people doing this. And so from about the 80s onward, it's become a field in which people look at the cultural dimensions of medical practice and especially um, the role of language in shaping the story of what happened, what's happening in your body, what is your life like, and what does that have to do with your illness? And I think that the objective has been to make doctors who are more attentive listeners because they read poetry, for instance. I'll just stop there. I could ramble on about that for the whole hour. <laughs> so what was what were some of the did you ever encounter resistance from those two sides, as it were, the medical side and the science side and the humanities side? Well, not very often because it was usually an elective course. On the other hand, I have given talks to big groups of doctors and medical professionals, and most of them come because they're curious. Some of them, some of the med students I've worked with, I can see they just kind of feel like, really, this is not what I need to be spending my time on. But most of them, I think, quickly recognize how challenging it is to go into a room and tell somebody that their their cancer is inoperable or that their husband is going to die or that this is going to hurt. You know, uh, learning how to talk to people, they very quickly understand is a really important part of their work. And also learning how to listen for how people put things and listen for what they're not saying. All of those listening skills, I think, are closely related to how you read a text and notice how a sentence works. So mostly people were receptive. Hmm. Did you see people change as you taught them the, that language? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, it was a joy to work with pre-med and med students who, over time, ventured to write a poem, for instance, or to write a a short piece of fiction or to write an essay where they would really be much more intentional about the metaphors that they were choosing and reflective about the words that they were using in the course of using them. You know, pausing over a word and saying, of course, when we talk about healing, that's a big word. And here are some of the things it has meant. And here's what it means now in a climate where mostly we're focused on curing, but healing is a bigger word. So, you know, the, the habit of just stopping over a word and commenting on it, I think, is all by itself um, something that adds a dimension to the conversation. Hmm. And you talk in your book, you have that wonderful example of how the medical community often uses a metaphor of fighting 
um, to describe the healing journey. And, and you talk about how that may not be the most helpful word and how changing that word allows us to realize more of, of who a person is. Oh, that's right. And American medicine is just riddled with military language. We mm -hmm. bombard things and we fight them and we, um, yeah, we have an arsenal of uh, drugs. And so, you know, a lot of the language in American medicine is borrowed from military language. And I think there are some reasons for that. Mm. It's very different in many other cultures, including European cultures. A cultural dynamic is interesting. We're in Alberta and St. Mary's, which I'm a student at St. Mary's, so we're slightly associated with St. Mary's through this conversation. We're a liberal arts school that teaches biology and psychology, but the, main, the, the other main programs are English and history uh, and politics. And, and I think one of the things that we encounter as students at St. Mary's in Alberta, which is a more conservative, practical, oil-driven culture, is that resistance to the idea of humanities in our culture? Um, and I wonder what prepared you to, to navigate between those boundaries? Um, well, I have known some really wonderful, my first boyfriend was a science geek, my brother was, you know, but I've, I've spent a lot of time with people in the sciences and recognized early on that they are kind of acculturated to a different way of conversing mm. that moves very quickly to the bottom line. And then later in my young adult years, I spent a lot of time around lawyers. I just happened to have a friend circle, a number of whom were attorneys who very, you know, very thoughtful people, but they get quickly trained to move into argument pretty quickly. And so, I remember having a fight with a friend who was not really a fight, you know, but an argument with a friend who was a very good lawyer, but he argued all the time and I was really tired of it. And so at some point in our conversation, he said, you know what? I hate arguing with you. And I said, oh, why? <laughs> and he said, because you keep commenting on how I put things. I just want you to listen to what I'm saying. And I said, well, how you say it is what you're doing. And so that led to a conversation about the how and the what and how they are threaded together in a conversation that doesn't always have to be argument. And maybe and one of the chapters in Speaking Peace is stop trying to win. talk about that chapter then let's go to some of these strategies um, that you that you articulate in your book and since you mentioned quit trying to win win essentially your book is organized into 12 short chapters that each give a strategy and then give some examples of how that strategy can work and you talk in that chapter trying to win um, about trigger words 
Um, so the idea that we need to move away, first of all, from the metaphor of battle, um, where one loses or wins an argument, to the idea of exploration. How do we recognize shared values and then use those shared values to learn more about the topic at hand? And, and you write here about trigger warnings. Uh, the idea that there's so many complex issues that we're being faced with. You mentioned oil fracking, for example, climate change. You mentioned mass incarceration. And you say, I'm aware that even to name those issues is to use words that trigger conditioned responses, sometimes knee-jerk reactions. Mm -hmm. I'm tempted to argue about them, especially with people who seem glib or willfully ignorant. I recognize that temptation is as one to avoid where possible, not out of fear, but in hope of finding a way into conversation that offers inviting alternatives to confrontation. Mm -hmm. So when you hear one of those trigger words over an issue that you care about so deeply, what, how do you turn those potential confrontations into shared conversations? Well, that is such a wonderful question. And it's not as though I can always do that either. But I will tell you a couple of um, strategies that seem to me to be helpful. One, as I just mentioned, is to pause over the word itself. Now, you're asking if somebody uses a word that triggers me that I think, you know, I just want to, yeah, because it works the other way too. So if I hear someone using language that I think is offensive, one thing I can do is say, you know, I wonder how you think about that word. Could you explain to me why that's a that's a word that seems useful to you? Because it's clear that that's a word that's going to uh, elicit a real emotional response from a lot of people. And it does from me, but I'm wondering how you're using it. So I think there's a kind of um, all-purpose value in a question like, what do you mean? What do I mean? It's such a simple question, but it seems to me that if we adopt that question as almost a spiritual practice, wait, help me understand what you mean. Help me understand what that word encapsulates for you, what it signifies for you. Um, talking about language isn't just a dodge. It is sometimes a way of going to the very heart of what's at stake. And it takes people by surprise because most people aren't used to pausing and, and defining a term or thinking about, yeah, I don't know, I just, you know, why would you use a slogan like that? Like down here, you know, if somebody says, I just want to make America great again. I have a lot of issues with that um, as just as a slogan, right? Because because we were great when, and have you heard of enslavement? And, you know, I could go into my whole argument about that. But if instead I said, how do you, how do you think about great? Then it's a different conversation. Um, and I think that another thing that is always possible is to say, yeah, let me think about that. You know, I'm, I don't want to just react here. So take a moment just a moment, that heartbeat between hearing it and reacting, where you say, okay, I think that's what you want. Huh. That time for a breath 
I think also can take people by surprise because they they expect a knee-jerk reaction if they're using language that's deliberately hostile or um, challenging. So, I mean, those are just two very, very simple ways of saying, wait, let's let's just reframe the conversation here. Hmm. Yeah, that's helpful. And even how you state that, like that, the what do you mean by that word? It almost brings both of you in the conversation back to what is the value that is actually at stake that's triggering you? <laughs> the value over human life, let's say, um, is that actually something that we share in common rather than something that we're going to go straight to what divides us? Right, right. And language is something we share in common. I mean, mm -hmm. all of us have had conversations where somebody says, what do you mean? And so then you paraphrase. That's a very common question, but it's so common that it really can be um, a way of softening or opening a conversation into wider waters. Mm -hmm. That's helpful. And one of the other things that really struck me about your book is something that I've, I've noticed in my own life, which is this tension between the desire for civility, which you value, you say that's the, the common good um, that we need to protect, but then also what you call the need to articulate outrage. And I find it very hard right now. We're, we're in a moment of time where there's a lot of outrage um, and a lot of things that affect human life that causes me outrage. So, for example, the dwelling, indwelling racism um, in the Christian church or things like the climate change and, and how that how we're complicit in that or even just a neighbor who doesn't put a mask on when they're in the building with me. And I, I find it so easy to go straight to outrage. But you say that there's civility and outrage are no strangers to each other. But you also say that public outrage is costly. You're going to lose some of your audience. Can you give us some of those litmus tests that you use that you just for discerning when it's appropriate to express your outrage in order to preserve that civility, that human life? Yeah. Um, I think if you think of outrage as a form of energy, you know, that I really get energized by the profound um, racism that's reflected in mass incarceration. That makes me angry. It makes me sorrowful. So I have a lot of energy behind that, right? So when I say articulate your outrage, I mean learn to harvest that energy and bring it to bear in the conversation in the service of clarity so that what you're working on is what you're working from is the outrage against injustice. We should be outraged by injustice. But um, be, learning to use that as energy to be brought into the conversation instead of as a kind of um, weapon that you aim at somebody, that means that you, I, I think it means, okay, let's have this conversation. I really want to understand because this, thing, this is really disturbing for me. And finding the words that say, this is disturbing. It is upsetting for me to think of how long some juveniles are held in prison um, for minor offenses and how often that happens to people who are black. That troubles me. But if I see, first of all, if I give an eye message, it troubles me, it disturbs me, it horrifies me. And I wonder um, how you think about that. 
I can bring a lot of energy to my naming my emotions and to the question, how do you think about that? But how do you, what is that like for you? How do you think about that? That's a, that's not a threatening question. So it's not what's wrong with you. <laughs> it's just the question is tempting to have. Mm -hmm. But, but the, but I think the point is to keep aiming the outrage at the system, the issue, and recognizing that all of us, including people who seem to be very menacing and hostile, are caught in these systems that are threatening and scary, and we are all in this mess together. So I think the outrage around injustice or around um, abuse of power or any of those things, they need to be uh, focused on the issue rather than the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also but talk. Also, go ahead. Let me just say one other thing about that. Please. When I yeah. think about civility and outrage, I think about the um, Jefferson and Franklin and Washington and all those people who assembled to write the Declaration of Independence. They were very pissed off at the king, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they, but they wrote this beautiful document that is basically a list of grievances. And these are very clear, sharp grievances and they're very specific. I think specificity is one of the best ways to channel outrage. Let me name for you exactly what it's like in a prison cell, mm. you know. Mm -hmm. So I think if you can channel it into images or anecdotes or examples, then you've really got something powerful to offer back to someone who may not have thought very deeply about what they're saying. Hmm. It's interesting. There's um there's a moment in Alberta right now. Um, a, a pastor who continued to have his church open and broke COVID protocol, and and now everybody's in a fuss over what the government should do about it. It's this it's this big deal, and I'm seeing so many of my friends on Facebook post about it. And I just read your book, and I was tempted to respond right away with something. And I thought of two things in your book. I thought of first of all check your facts. Do I actually have the facts of the story straight? Or am I relying on something that I heard through hearsay on online? And then what you talk about in this chapter, which is, does my concern extend beyond personal affront? Is me posting about this going to help other people? Or is it just me getting riled up and wanting to express myself? And I think those principles have really helped me already. Oh, good. Oh, I'm so glad. Notice that there's a conversation taking place in the chat already, which is wonderful. Um, does, I invite people to post some questions in the chat. Um, and while I do that, um, Lance, since you're unmuted and you've been providing a few quotes, just while people start writing out those questions, do you have any thoughts you want to add or questions you want to ask? 
there's a uh, a book that's remarkably similar in 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 title to yours, and but but looks at it more from a psychological point of view. Really looking at this in, this idea of internal consciousness, uh, and and you're probably familiar with the book uh, because it is so similar in title. Speak a, a piece in a world of confluence uh, conflict by Marshall Rosenberg. I know Rosenberg's work. I don't know that one in particular. T tell me a little bit more, if you could speak a little bit more to to his work as you understand it and how it relates to what you are trying to accomplish in your book. Um, when when he talks about the need to create an internal consciousness of peace as the first step towards effecting social change, could could you speak more about that and how it relates to your own uh, ideas that you that you share in your work? Yeah, sure. I think that his book on nonviolent communication, which is the one that most people have read if they know Rosenberg, um, is immensely valuable in the focus he brings to naming a wide range and a very nuanced range of emotions so that you can come to recognize where my own sentences are coming from. Where is that well? You know, am I speaking defensively? Am I speaking out of what need am I speaking out of? And that's a question that he trains people to ask about themselves and others. What What is the need being expressed here? And I, I have had some questions myself about second guessing other people's needs, but I still think it's a good way to recognize that when someone's coming at you with hostility, there may be something they're needing that they're not getting, and maybe you can give them satisfaction of some sort, but that the need takes you, focusing on need takes you to a deeper place. I think where I probably part company is that I'm not trying to write from a psychological standpoint so much as to say there are some strategies, there are language strategies that all of us have available who are speakers of English in this instance. And so when we begin to notice the words we're, we're using, that actually provides an avenue into some psychological understanding. So maybe it's just that I'm starting from the other end of the mm. transaction. Mm. That's helpful, thank you. Um, Daniel, did you want me to go ahead and share a, a comment that's in, in the chat box? Uh, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah. Uh, it's from David, our friend David from Ireland. It's great to have you, uh, David. And uh, as as you know, David, we are having troubles navigating the uh, the mute and unmute. So uh, if you don't mind, I'm just going to go ahead and, and share uh, the, the comment that you made. Uh, um, uh, Professor McIntyre, I don't know if you can read the chats in your device that you have. No, I can't. Okay, perfect. So let, let, let me read this for you, if I may. Um, so I just shared with you the context where David is uh, is residing. Uh, he says, I reside in Northern Ireland, and there's a very comical, if not poignant, mur mural in Belfast of a, of a few balaclava-clad gunmen holding semi-automatic weapons. And the slogan above these men reads, prepared for peace, ready for war. I wonder if you can perhaps unpack the irony in that image for us a little bit and, and relate it to, to some, of the, um, some of the triggers and the, uh, the conflicts that you see even within our own North American context. Right. Thank you for that. I think that 
we live with that irony and we are more and more deeply mired in it. We even call um, troops that we send to parts of Africa peacekeepers. We send them over there with weapons. So I think that the confusion around security that it can only one supposes be won by violence mires us in this. It's not just a paradox, it's a contradiction. So prepared for peace and ready for war is a really common mindset. Um, yes, we need to be vigilant and individually we need to be skillful about defending ourselves. But um, I don't think that the kind of investment we make in war is preparing us for peace. I mean, I look at the U.S. military budget, which is over 60% of the budget, more than any other country proportionately. And I think war is immensely profitable. You know, so even how we use the word war is really problematic. It used to be that wars had to be declared by Congress. None of the wars we've been engaged in since the Vietnam War, or no, since World War II has been officially declared. And so we're in these endless conflicts that are raking in a lot of money for private corporations. And so there's just become this entanglement between business and um, the war making that used to be on clear and very limited terms and conducted by government. And so I think that just even the slogan itself is it's oriented to getting people to buy into a particular mindset that itself is really deeply deceptive. And I'm not convinced that we can prepare for peace if we're investing in preparation for war to the degree that we are. So individually, I think that we can step back from that. And as communities, I think we can step back from that. And there are people who do that very vigorously, like the Quakers and you know, all kinds of protest communities. But individually, we're all sitting here wondering if we should pay our taxes and who to vote for. And and we have a lot of decisions to make. But so much of it these days comes down to, are we going to invest in violence and violation of the earth? And we cannot conduct war without destroying not only people and infrastructures, but whole ecosystems. Or are we going to invest in peace? And so practicing peacemaking in our conversations and in public discourse is a way of preparing for peace rather than um, rather than emulating war even at the level of argument. Does that make sense? It does. Thank you. Daniel, would you like me to go ahead with the, the next questions? Yes, please. Go right ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, Professor McIntyre, this is coming from uh, Kyle, our, our, one of our guests. His question is this. I, I guess my question is, do you feel that, quote, border walkers have a role in brokering peace, for lack of a better word, meaning someone who has relationships in two different worlds? Should they take it upon themselves to have the two sides understand each other? Or is it up to each individual to work on that themselves. Do you have a thought uh, to that, uh, Professor yeah, McIntyre? That is such a thoughtful question. 
I mean, I think one of the questions we have to keep asking ourselves as we move into public situations is, is, is this my business? Am I the one that's called in this moment? Am I the one that's positioned to mediate or um, to even to enter into whatever I see brewing here? And so a friend many years ago introduced me to this lovely phrase, the call of the moment. She said, you're very concerned about your, you know, your calling in a big sense. But she said, really, to pay attention to the way the spirit leads you is to pay attention to what is the call in this moment? Why am I here in this place at this time? What is being asked of me? Is this a time to step back or to step into whatever is going on? And those are discernment questions. And I think that as we practice asking ourselves the question, we can be both bolder about stepping in when it seems as though there's nobody else to do this, I guess it's my job, or stepping back because out of respect for the way other people need to work something out. I think we do have to mind each other's business, but it takes a lot of discernment to do that wisely and generously. Perhaps we can bring this to a very practical question that Anne raises. Um, and so here's her question. Uh, and, and I think it I think it relates very much, uh, as I said, in a practical way to what you were just saying. How do you think we can identify the needs of people who are wary of masks and COVID restrictions? What kind of questions can we ask to get to identifying when those strong reactions are coming from? So it's it's a bit of getting into our neighbor's business here, isn't it? But <laughs> but but we also are identifying how interrelated their choices are to our own well-being. And and so this this very much is is navigating those borders. Uh, and and how how do we do that? Uh, do you have some practical wisdom for us? Well, you know, this is tricky, of course, and it depends on the situation in which it comes up. But I could imagine if you are in a situation where you're not just passing somebody in the grocery store, but you're actually able to have a little conversation. Again, I think to bring genuine curiosity to it rather than judgment at first is to say, is there a reason, or why is it hard for you to wear the mask? Is that hard for you? Or, you know, why might it be hard for you? And so I think the difference in tone between why are you doing that and why are you doing that? Just that little shift is to say, I'm, could you share this with me? Could you let me help me understand? I think that's where the open question is helpful. Could you help me understand? Because it's a little scary for me when people don't wear masks. Could you help me understand why you don't or why it matters to you not to? And then if they go on a long riff about individualism and individual freedom and so on, then I think there's another question to be raised about, well, um, are you so, are you concerned about people who are worried about this? How do you kind of handle your neighbor's anxieties? And if they, I mean, people can just blow you off anytime you ask these questions, of course. 
But I think the key to all of this is genuine curiosity. I wonder why you don't. And if I can look at somebody who's doing that and instead of getting angry, get curious, then I can move into what I think of as my Oliver Sacks place. Do you know Oliver Sacks, the neuro neurologist writer? What I love about him is that his basic approach to all his patients is, who are you? What's it like to be you? You know, and could you help me understand what's going on with you? So can I help you with that? It's just this wonderful childlike curiosity that shows up in all of his descriptions of his encounters with patients with very complicated conditions. And I think that can be exported into these other kinds of encounters where you come in with the curiosity that says, huh, what's it like to be you? Who are you? I wonder, I wonder what you're thinking right now. Can you share that with me? Are you willing to tell me a little bit more about it? I don't know. It's not magic, but I think that it works. It can work. That's brilliant. I think yeah, that's like, yeah, I was just going to say on that as, as a transition, I think you would agree, Marilyn, that literature, good literature trains us for that kind of curiosity into lives and motivations. Maybe good film does that as well. Mm -hmm. I, I think good film can. I think good literature I was having this conversation with my 12-year-old grandson the other day that there is no, film is not a substitute for what's on the page because what's on the page means that you take those words and you yourself craft the images that you bring to them and that's really rich what's going on in your brain. Um, but yes, I, I think literature trains us in compassion. And I think that the way it does that is twofold. One is to just engage us, teach us to be interested in how other people do life. You know, how other people might do life. That everybody has a story and that once you know the story, you have to revise your judgments because the bottom line is always, it's not that simple. Any Anyone you're looking at, any situation. And so I do think that good literature teaches us to suspend judgment, but also literature provides us with language. It's like being provided with the equipment that we need. In fact, one of my favorite critics wrote a chapter in um, a book called Literature as Equipment for Living. I love that phrase. That's wonderful. Uh, and I, I just want to point out that although you can't see the chat, not all the comments we're getting are questions. People are writing out the quotes they've heard from you that are resonating. Um, so I just wanted to let you know that this is this is oh, resonating with us. Um, so one that last question from the audience before we I, I ask you one last question for myself. This is from David again from Ireland. He asks, do you think there's a connection between what he says, the erosion of traditional values, he mentions family, religion, and dutiful citizenship, and the dumbing down of the West, in particular through flooding of attention with soundbite type information and entertainment, rather than encouraging deeper thinking. Uh, and maybe you can ask you ask, answer that question, maybe speak a little bit to social media as, as a lover of words. How do you care for social media? How do you engage with it? So his question and then that follow up. Yeah, that's a sort of twofold or threefold question, but I think that um, just to start with what David asked, um, thank you for that question. I do think that the erosion of values has to do with oversimplification. I mean, oversimplification is the beginning of bigotry, right? 
a, a simple snap judgment, a simple slogan, reducing everything, everything to a few words or a single image um, or a bumper sticker means that we are not any longer encouraging each other to reflect or to define or to um, reframe or any of those things that go on in a sustained exchange or conversation where you say, what do you mean? Or you say, could you give me an example of that? Or are there instances in which that doesn't quite apply? Or um, what might be some of the downsides to what you're recommending? You know, all those kinds of questions that say, there's more to say here, let's stay with it a little longer. But if what you have is a soundbite, that's not gonna happen. So when you ask, how do I navigate social media? Um, I would say my one word answer would be reluctantly. I'm on it because for a number of reasons. One of which is that if you publish books, your publishers really want you to have to be there. So I go there, but I don't post stuff very much. And I am leery of how easily misunderstanding can can snowball if something is said in a few lines on a Facebook post or a tweet. And then you, it takes a lot to unravel that, and it just seems exhausting to me. I would rather be in an extended conversation with a human being. And I'm glad that you're all human beings out there. I'm so longing, as you all are, to be in the same room with people. But, you know, the word conversation used to mean, or in it, one of the ancient meanings was to walk with, to, to be a companion. And that takes time. So I think that the time factor is part of the dumbing down, the, sh the shortening, the simplifying, abbreviating, the text speak. The, um, when, you, when you exchange in text speak, you lose the etymology or the deep sense of the history of words or their relatedness. There's no substitute for mm. the time it takes. Wonderful. I wish we had more time to explore these things more. Um, but I want to end, I want to close, ironically, by asking you about non-closure, which you bring up in your book. And I, for those of us who've been part of this conversation more than once on Border Walkers, you'll know that when I started reading about what you say, the main temptation is closure. Closure is comfortable and comforting, even when it leaves a problem unsolved. I started reacting so enthusiastically with my pencil in the side of the book, <laughs> as we have a conversation in the margins, because that's a phrase that Lance has given us several times as one of the guiding principles of these kinds of conversations, except non-closure. And he you write, you allowed me to kind of expand that metaphor a little bit further when you said, the more I see of the damage simplistic thinking can do, the more I admire and cling to John Keats, the romantic poet, notion of, quote, negative capability, end quote, which he defined as the capacity to dwell in ambiguity or paradox without, quote, any irritable reaching after fact and reason. 
end quote, to allow room for wonder, speculation, and uncertainty. Now, to be clear, you value fact and reason quite a bit. One of your strategies is check your facts. Um, but I, that concept of closure, of non-closure, negative capability, can you tell us how we can develop that in our own thinking and in our own conversations? Oh, yeah, I love that term. Um, and I think of it essentially as a capacity to entertain and, and sit with ambiguity without getting nervous about that, that there really are more than two sides to any question. You don't have to, to choose sides. You can sort of um, float around examining different points of view or vantage points or examples or perspectives. And that, again, it takes time to do that. But you can be comfortable taking that time. And actually, I wrote a piece a few years back for, I think, our college quarterly called In Praise of Incompletion, which was just had to do with uh, not driving to that kind of closure that says, I have to finish this. I have to get to the bottom line. I have to turn every page. And instead says, oh, if I come upon something that's really worth pausing over, I'm going to pause. Or one exercise I've given in writing courses is to say, when you get to the end of your paper, your essay, use your last paragraph to somehow communicate that the conversation isn't over yet. So now we have see seen what we've seen, and I've offered you some reasons to see it this way. And there's more to say. And here are some of the next questions that might come up once we've thought about this. Or there, of course, is another way of looking at all of this that we might revisit. But just to acknowledge that all of our conversations take place in the context of a long, ongoing kind of human and humane evolution toward becoming the kinds of communities we want to be. So as Zelda Fitzgerald said in her autobiography about something, she said, I didn't get here for the beginning. Um, I can't stay for the end. I find myself in the middle, but somehow I must, I must try to make sense of it all. That's kind of where we all are. We got all got dropped on the planet. We get this journey. We enter into history and public conversation at the point at which we enter into it. But there's a long conversation that's preceded us and it will continue. And so I think to recognize humbly that we're always in the middle of something that we continue to learn and fathom and turn to new angles means that we don't have to rush to judgment. Of course, we have to make judgment calls. And of course, we need to come to some conclusions in order to act. But the kind of open-endedness that says, I'm sure there's more to see here, is just a way of saying, I'm not God, and I'm always mm. operating on partial information. Mm. That's, I've just seen people resonate with that, both in the chat and just seen faces. Um, and it reminds me a little bit, too, of that the famous Martin Luther King Jr. quote of the long arc of history bends towards justice. And that that idea, sometimes that can give us glib comfort. You know, I'm not going to worry about the injustices around me because I know it's going to work out. But at the same time, it does give us that sense of hope that this conversation is going to go on beyond me. Um, and 
Yeah, and I, I can participate in that. I can participate in that conversation and I can shape people with those words that I've been given. Right. And participate is such a beautiful word. You know, what am I part of? That's another one of these questions. When people talk about examining their conscience, I think, you know, maybe part of that, part of training our conscience and our moral sensibilities, to go back to David's question and, you know, restoring ourselves to ourselves a sense of value is um, to widen out the question, not just about what am I doing? Am I lying, cheating, committing adultery, stealing? But what am I participating in? What is being done on my behalf? There's a very interesting form of confession now in the Episcopalian Church that includes not just what we have done and left undone, but the things done on our behalf. We're confessing mm -hmm. those things done on our behalf. I wow. love that because it's such an acknowledgement that I am part of a much lar larger conversation and field of action. And I also share responsibility for that. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Lance, do you have any closing thoughts before I wrap up with a few announcements? Uh, Daniel, I think it's just appropriate because Professor McIntyre can't see the chats. Um, for her to know that there are many people expressing gratitude for having been invited into such a beautiful conversation. Uh, I think what, what you did was exemplified how words can shape our space that we live together. It's so vital to for us to appreciate how um, our language truly does change our world. And you've you've demonstrated that for us tonight. So I'm I'm echoing merely those others who have joined us in this community to say thank you again. Well thank you. It's my great pleasure to be here. And also, of course, the good thing is that we have um, we have your words, Marilyn, um, to to pick up, to purchase. Um, I'll highlight two of your books that I urge our friends here. If this has resonated with you, buy and read these books. They've impacted me immensely. So the one that I mentioned at the beginning, this is Caring for Words in a Culture of Lies, and is about to be reissued. Am I right, Marilyn, in a few months with a new foreword? Yes, it's a it's actually a new edition. I haven't made huge changes, but some of the references were a little bit dated, so I kind of updated it, new introduction. That's great. And then I've also mentioned speaking peace in a climate of conflict. I always say culture of conflict, but it's climate. Um, and, and both of these books are their strategies. They're, they're little essays that are beautifully written that make you ponder and think through the implications of words and give us really concrete strategies and, and ways to explore. Um, Marilyn, are there any other books of yours that you think we should pick up um, that's related to this conversation? Well, um, there's one that's just out. It's a small one, but for those of you who um, who pay attention to the season of Lent, I have a little book of Lenten reflections that just on a phrase a day um, called Where the Eye Alights. That's brand new. Well, thank you, everybody. Um, good night, and um, may we go forth into the world more considerate of our words and finding ways to have those much-needed conversations with others. Thank you again for joining us. Well, Marilyn sure left us with a lot of wisdom and advice that I've been thinking about and trying to put into practice ever since recording this conversation. Listening to it again, though, I was struck by three things. The first was a comment Marilyn made towards the beginning of our conversation, 
when she described writing her first paper on medical humanities and then taking it to a conference where she found a group of people who cared about the same thing. It reminded me a little bit about a comment Makoto Fujimura made during our conversation with him on Border Walkers, where he remarked that it was important for Border Walkers to go out into the world two by two. As much as we care about going out into unfamiliar territory as Border Walkers, it's crucial to find like-hearted people who can encourage us, challenge us, and confirm us along this journey. Marilyn gathered those people around her early in her career. I hope that through making this podcast, Border Walkers, we also can find other people to walk alongside us. The second thing that struck me was just the tone of Marilyn's voice. Did you catch it? It communicated so much. Her curiosity, her humility, her questioning personality, her wit, her confidence, and also how much she just valued people. I expect that just that tone of voice and all it conveys makes difficult conversations that much more human. Reminds me too of the importance of having these conversations with people, calling people up to have these conversations instead of just debating things on Facebook. And finally, I came away from this conversation with more of an awareness of the metaphors that I unconsciously or carelessly use. After the conversation ended, I was talking to Lance, my co-host, and he said, Daniel, you kept using the word audience when referring to those who were listening in to our conversation, but that very word is a metaphor that implies that they're separate and distinct from the rest of us. That's not what we want to communicate. We want people to come alongside us as border walkers. What's a different word that we can use in our next conversation? Well, Lance was right, of course. And Marilyn has taught me and, and both of us to be more aware of those words that we use and, and what they imply. She has a great chapter on that in her books. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation. All of the books that were mentioned are in the show notes for this podcast. And so if you want to buy Marilyn's books, which I highly recommend and read them, or just investigate any of the other subjects or links that were brought up in discussion, check those show notes out. This podcast was produced by myself, Daniel Melva Jones, and co-hosted alongside Lance Dixon. We'd be grateful if you went into iTunes or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, and gave us a review or a rating, or shared the podcast with someone else you think would enjoy it, you think would enjoy being a border walker and learning alongside us. Our next podcast conversation will again be recorded live, and we'd love for you to join us. It'll take place sometime in March. We don't have the details yet on the guest or the time, but you can find more information either by subscribing to the podcast. We'll release a short trailer with all the details about a week before the actual recording or by visiting anchor.fm slash borderwalkers. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it.